Our podcast, the Kosher Sommelier Podcast, is sponsored by Liquid Kosher. Liquid Kosher is a curated wine experience for those seeking quality kosher wines that are vetted by wine experts. That wine expert being me. We have relationships with family-owned wine producers around the world, our partner winemakers, and we are sourcing excellent wines that come direct to consumer through our website. The best and the most exciting feature of Liquid Kosher is our Cellar Wine Club, which is a quarterly subscription that opens the door to rare and limited production, limited allocation wines. Join us, join the club, get a club box. We will feature some of the world's most exciting and interesting kosher wines that are produced only by family-owned wineries that are really punching above their weight. So I invite you personally to come and enjoy the Liquid Kosher selection and the Cellar Wine Club. Liquidkosher.com. Please check us out. This is the Kosher Sommelier Podcast. I'm Andrew Breskin, the Kosher Sommelier. Each show, we will discover some of the amazing stories and personalities in the world of wine. Wine tasting, wine making, fine dining, and one of my favorite subjects, the wine business. So pour yourself a glass and enjoy the conversation. We are here uh, back on the podcast with my good friend, uh, David Edelman, who lives in Northern California winemaker extraordinaire among many other things that are slowly being revealed upon every time we have a conversation more and more little uh interesting things that he uh that he's involved in so um i met david um in person this year but um, we've been corresponding for quite a while and uh finally making this happen and hopefully after this we'll get to hang out in person in david's part of the world and see what we can come up with but um in the meantime, I just wanted to introduce you and give yourself a chance to introduce yourself and uh, maybe give a little bit of background about why we're here uh, with respect to wine. And um, yeah, have at it. Well, thank you. I'm a proud member of your wine club as well. So that should definitely be mentioned. Yeah, thank uh, you. That is how we met. Um, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. I love it. It's great. I mean, I, that's one of the things that draws me to wine is kind of the variance and just different wines that are available around the world. I mean, whether, you know, I I might be highly localized in Napa, but, you know, wine's made around the world. And I genuinely love the global reach, especially now that the kosher wine is expanding. Um, just a little bit about myself. I was born and raised in Oakland, California. Uh, I got into the wine business the very first time, uh, actually in vineyards. Uh, I joined the Israeli army very shortly after I graduated high school. And I needed a job right before I enlisted. So I worked on a at a vineyard in Moshav Beit Gamliel in the central center of uh, of Israel. And I like to joke that I actually joined the army because it had better hours. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. very, very hot in the summer in the Merkaz. And we would work from about 6 in the morning to about 10 in the morning. Then it would get too hot. Then you'd go back out at about four and work till nine. Um, so it was, you know, it's quite a quite an eye opener. Uh, you know, growing up in Northern California, I've obviously always been exposed to wine. Uh, we are one of the hotbeds of wine production. And so when I came back from the army before I started college, I reached out to Jonathan Haydu over at Covenant and got started working with him. 
and then work my way up basically from driver to assistant winemaker. Uh, concurrently to that, I worked also with Dan Levin at his few projects up in Napa. And since then, I've expanded that brand to uh, where Dan and I are at seven different wineries, um, which we divide on a not numerically equal scale, but a probably in terms of workload uh, scale. Uh, and as you mentioned, I do many other things, including working for the Oakland Athletics, as well as a few other professional sports teams. Uh, but we can talk about that a different time. Yeah, that's fantastic. So um, your your winemaking kind of began in the vineyard and you worked your way up um, in the world of, uh, I guess, in the hierarchy of, of uh, wineries and winemaking. And I think to provide a little bit more color to your um, winemaking experience, so obviously you, you learn the ropes um, at, I guess, what we can call a very high level. Um, I know at Covenant and Haydu, they are extremely um, meticulous about the details, um, hygiene, uh, processes, timing, et cetera. And then you leverage that experience and working um, in Napa, in the Valley itself, um, not just making wine, but um, making wine at a very high level in a sort of a, I think you described it as more of a, like a being an art restorer or an art restoration type of a, uh, I remember that analogy. Um, So you're making uh, kosher wines at traditionally um, heritage wineries that produce uh, non-kosher wines. So why don't you explain a little bit about how that works and how, um, how your winemaking approach is, uh, has to be adapted to the, um, to the uh, sort of instances of, of the, of the particular job. Yeah, no, you bring up a very good point. So it's, it's a challenge and I find it the most alluring challenge of, of what I do um, in that I work for seven different winemakers. Um, and although it is, you know, from the same place in the same way, everyone goes about winemaking in a different way. And on that note, it's not, you know, we don't have to sign NDAs. We don't really do any of that kind of stuff. Nobody's that overly protective of what they do. It's more like, here's what we do. Good luck if you try and imitate it. But even then, there's so many intricacies that go into, you know, the various facets of winemaking, especially in production, where I really have to do it seven different ways. And part of the difficulty for me is kind of distancing myself from it. You know, so when I'm in Napa, I it's not an automat- automaton situation. You know, it's not that you're just a robot carrying out instructions. I work very, very closely with the winemakers at each of the wineries but the consulting and as well as the on-site winemakers who are some of the best in the business um, to kind of mimic the style of the winery itself. And I think that's where in the last 10 years, we've really made strides in kind of taking down a lot of the stigmas and walls around kosher wine, especially within the, within the industry. I mean, I've had many people talk to me, whether it's the filter guy, whether it's, you know, the, people that do the bottling truck and they're routinely either surprised or they'll come to be like, Oh, did you hear my commas is making kosher wine? And then they realize that there's two people that go around Napa and it's the same two people that they're talking to. Right. Um, I think that, um, yeah, that's definitely, uh, it's, it's great that things are progressing. I think that, um, I'd like to elaborate on what you're saying just to give more clarity and explain the scope and the gravity of what you're, what you're doing for people who might not understand exactly um, the details. So a winemaker has 
a wine has his own approach, has his own philosophy, own ideas about how wine should be made in a given winery in a given vineyard, um, etc. And then sometimes wineries will hire outside consultants to uh, bring their worldview and expertise to a particular winery. For example, there's a, a couple big guns in Bordeaux, and they come out to Napa and they tell people what to do. They give their opinion and they take off, and that's it. What what makes your position very challenging? Um, which is what you're, uh, you're rising to the occasion to achieve is um, you're a winemaker with, of course, your own ideas and your own views about how wine should be made. And then you get hired by a winery um, that has their own ideas about how wine should be made. They give you sort of a loose um, recipe for their approach of winemaking. And then you have to sort of adapt their recipe to a wine um, that is going to be made as a kosher wine to um, – sort of have that kosher wine echo the style and the um, and the concepts behind the main wine, the main non-kosher brand wine. Um, and then not only are you doing that, but you have to uh, clone yourself many times over to provide the same um, reciprocative approach to winemaking to a completely different winery with a completely different approach um, all the while sort of checking your own biases and preferences with winemaking and making sure that you're not making your wine at their winery, but that you are just using your skills and your creativity to find a way to make their wine at their winery and do it many, many times over, uh, each with its own sort of layers of difficulty and challenges and, and preferences therein. So I think it's crazy. Uh, it's a lot of work. <laughs> And it takes a lot of talent, and that's why I wanted to talk to you today. I think it's very impressive what you're doing. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't, I don't sleep much during harvest. Um, you, yeah, I work about twenty hours a day usually um, during harvest, and my harvest usually lasts from about the first week of August to December, um, because we have to do some very creative scheduling um, when it comes to fitting all these wineries in. I mean, from a kosher perspective, especially because for for kosher reasons, we're always the first one on the line. Right. So if I'm processing fruit that day, I have to be there first right? Uh, and I have to be there first at every winery. So it does take some very high level schedule Tetris to make it all work. And as you were saying, it, it is one of the biggest challenges to avoid, you know, the homogenization of, of our winemaking um, to really ensure that each wine is reflective of the winery and the brand. And I think that it, two really good examples of this. So my commas, which, I've had the privilege of doing for the last seven years almost um, where it's a historic brand. And because it's a historic brand, people have preconceived notions of what it should taste like. And obviously, you know, working with Braden, the head winemaker and, and Ben and, and Chris, as well as Andy Erickson is the consultant. Um, you know, we want to be able to innovate on the brand while still maintaining people's expectations of what they're going to get when they drank a Mayakamas. A house style. That said, when it, comes, when it ties into the kosher side, right. we started with one barrel of cab in 2013. Uh, this last year, both the rosé production and the SB production for the entire winery were made kosher. Um, we've evolved to the point where they know that there's no there's nothing qualitatively different. And so they, it's been my responsibility to produce the white wine, the, the Sauvignon Blanc rather. I mean, we do Chardonnay as well. And Chardonnay is obviously a very large component of their non-kosher, but to do the Sauvignon Blanc as well as the Rosé. 
And for those that care that it's kosher, wonderful, great. And for those that don't care that it's kosher, it's just another Mayakama's wine skew that it really has no difference other than the OU sticker on the back. That's really so, a major, major level um, in kosher winemaking that um, I don't think that the average person would appreciate how how significant um, that is to have a um, a line and maybe listen it's not you know let's just call it how it is it means it's not the most it's not the sort of heritage line of, of my commas is not cab and it's not chardonnay but it is a it is a main vineyard or main brand um product um and to have that being made 100 percent kosher um, and having those products marketed to the broader audience um is a huge deal yeah, and, and additionally on that, um, they've always been very clear from the start, but the winemaking as well as the ownership, that this isn't a second label, this isn't a second growth, this is not this is not a difference in any the wine itself is not different. It is a full Mayakama's wine, it's not a second class citizen in any way, and they represent it as such. Um versus what I was gonna say in, in comparison to that, a place like Marciano, which is fifty percent kosher production, right? where it's literally half the grapes go to kosher, half the grapes go to non-kosher. They're made the exact same way with the exact same yeast strains, uh, nutrient adds, et cetera. The only difference is who handles the wine. So tasted blind, you probably would not be able to tell the difference between the kosher and the non-kosher. And so, but that being a newer winery, you really can have kind of more of a stylistic say in in the matter. And I know Dan and, and Morgan work very close together on that. Um, and so it's, you know, as we've seen that brand rise as well in the kosher market, you know, where we came from 10 years ago when we started it, it was, it was much, much smaller production, obviously, but that winery as it's grown has also grown its kosher program. So at all the places I've worked at, the kosher program has always grown. And as we've kind of stripped away that stigma and they realize it's not actually that scary. uh, A lot of the winemakers I work with actually view it more as an academic challenge like, huh, let's see if I can make wine with my hands tied behind my back. Um, but, you know, it's always been a collaborative effort. And I really, I personally, and I don't think the kosher Napa scene could be where it is without the respect shown by the non-Jewish winemakers at these wineries towards the kosher process, as well as just the overall kind of halachic intricacies that go into kosher winemaking. Yeah, it can be very difficult to try and explain, you know, okay, if you graft before Tubishvat, then actually you get an extra year. And then trying to explain that again in Spanish is also very difficult. So, you know, it can get, uh, can get a little bit complicated. Um, but, you know, we've been able to find a way at each winery. I mean, I, I don't know if you've been to Mayakamas, but Mayakamas being an 100-year-old property we have to walk lines up through the ceiling. It's a, um, it was built for gravity before they had forklifts and provides its own intricacies. Obviously when we had the fires throughout Napa, that was also a problem. We didn't have access to electricity or water for 40 days, which comp during harvest, which complicates matters a little bit. Um, you know, but from a coffee perspective and just a overall winemaking perspective. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it really, each winery provides its own challenges and, Fortunately, we've been able to, through word of mouth entirely, people have kind of heard of the kosher wine production. And I've, I've 
people have reached out to me and that's how we've kind of grown the brand. Uh, and it's really nice for me because I can see the motivations for people. And there are a few people that reach out to me because they view it as kind of a niche market and for economical reasons. And I tend to turn them down um, because I really need to bank on the integrity of the winemaking team to ensure that both the cost route side, as well as just the rationale for making kosher wine stays above board. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of um, a lot of personality behind um the right type of winemaker who is going to, you know, really humble themselves and say, okay, like, listen, I don't really know what you're talking about, but I, I appreciate that it's important to you and to uh, many, many, many other people who were making the wine for, and they just agree to take a step back and sort of surrender that process to someone else. Um, you know, I've seen that firsthand at um, Domaine Rose Camille in Pomerol where the winemaker, you know, it was already a 2005 harvest. You know, he said, this is my vineyard. This is my winery. Um, this is how I make wine, and you guys are going to do it. And um, you know, he he just builds a very sort of a closeness with um, the showroom and and the other kosher hands who are there, and that they just sort of you know he takes a step back and and he lets them do their thing, but under his careful watch. But I can imagine it, it's very challenging and very sort of maybe frustrating, but to not be hands on with such a hands on process, and so. Yeah, having someone who's not going to be sort of cool with that or not going to um, understand that sacrifice or that compromise, probably you're looking at some problems down the road in that relationship. It's it's an immediate fireable offense at every winery I work at to touch the kosher zip ties or anything else. They have each of them individually have made it a fireable offense to mess with the kosher wine at all. And, you know, it's just knowing there has to be that element of trust. Um, and, you know, because of that, I think that the product really shows. I think that we've been able to qualitatively raise up um, the level of kosher wine. I mean, we started, obviously, before my time, but um, members of the Oakland community started at the Harlem Reserve, at the Napa Valley Reserve, which is one of Harlem's properties back in 2003. It was their first vintage, or 2004, rather. Um, I started working there. Um, part-time, you know, with Dan when I was in, in college and whatnot, uh, probably about 10 years ago. And then, you know, in the last, since the last six years, I've been going there as well. And, but that's main, you know, and then, uh, working up from there, you know, so that's a very high level wine, not available, not available to the public, but, uh, Marciano and Mayakamas in 2013, but at the same time. And then I've, I do work over at Tench Vineyards, which is next door to Screaming Eagle. I work at a, a custom crush facility called Vintage, uh, which is over by Napa Airport. Uh, one Hope Winery. Now I'm going to forget one, and then I'm going to be embarrassed. Uh, but <laughs> we do, you know, we do a lot of we do a lot of properties all over all over Napa Valley, both sides of the trail, and you know, each of them, as we said, is is unique and can you know, and are kind of leveling up the kosher wine production in, in Napa, not necessarily in direct, not necessarily in direct competition, but just by association, moving the bar higher and higher. Yeah, no, there's still a lot more room to grow. I think in Napa, um, I personally had a, the Sauvignon Blanc, the my common Sauvignon Blanc had it again yesterday. Uh, still tasting great. <laughs> still 22. Great. Yeah. The, the new brand vintage? new one. Yeah. 22. Oh, great. Wonderful. Still tasting amazing. Um, and so I'm definitely a, uh, a uh, 
there used to be an old thing called a hair club for men. And the owner was like, I'm not just the owner. I'm also a customer. Cause he wore like a toupee or something like that. So like, I'm not just like the host, but I'm also like a customer. I, I definitely buy the, uh, I buy those wines, especially after you told me, um, that it was a single production, not a split label. Um, I was definitely, uh, definitely all in on yeah, that. So the 20, yeah. The 22 Sauvignon Blanc from my comments is all kosher. Yeah. It's fantastic stuff. Um, uh, what was the, the coolest, um, winemaking experience you had? Uh, I mean, I think that it, it bears to give some context that, um, th- where you are working is definitely the, um, the upper crust of, of Napa Valley society. Um, probably there's some celebrities who come through there. There's probably some celebrity winemakers who maybe are not celebrities to most people, but to, uh, you know, wine folks are, are really cool. I, also, probably, I mean, I think that you'd agree that you know, once you're once you're there in the winery and you're with someone like Morgan Moraes at at Marciana, who I've spent some time with, and Andy Erickson, who I've never met, like I know they're regular dudes. Like once you're there, but there has to have been some pretty neat experiences that you've had personally, just kind of being in the building. Yeah, no, uh, for sure. It's it's interesting for me because it's gen it's genuinely not my personality type to to kind of gush over people. And because of that, I often not put my foot in my mouth, so to speak, but just kind of will have a long conversation with someone and not, you know, think about it. Uh, I had a probably 30 minute conversation once with Bob Levy during Crush about everything other than winemaking. Um, Bob Levy has been the winemaker for Harlan for about as long 20, as I've been alive. 20, yeah. 25 years, uh, something like that. Yeah. Longer than that, yeah. Um, you know, and then afterwards kind of went over to the wine maker. I was like, oh, who is that I was talking to? He's like, oh, that's Bob. I was like, oh, <laughs> okay, cool. Um, you know, it's more, more that kind of thing. Uh, but that's more on me than uh, anybody else. You know, we definitely, I definitely have, and beyond privileged to work at some of these unbelievable properties. And I, I really mean unbelievable. Um, and it's one of actually my favorite parts of working at Mayakamas is that they do kosher tastings and oftentimes I'll come up to do the kosher tasting and I get to see kind of the reaction of, you know, people. I mean, my, my in-laws who are not wine people uh, came in from Queens and even they could, you know, appreciate uh, the scenery at Mayakamas and, and just kind of, and then we went to Marciano, they could appreciate the service at Marciano. And it, you know, it was really just, I, I do sometimes take a step back and, and get to appreciate the fact that when I, you know, when something on the bottling truck breaks, we get to go hike around at a 500 acre private property at the very top of Mount Veter, uh, where you can see the Golden Gate Bridge on a clear day. I mean, over 50 miles away. It's it really is a stunning property. And yeah, you know, I, I do I do recognize and realize that I work at some of the nicest places in Napa Valley. Um, but sometimes it is just like, oh, OK, I'm going into work today. And you really never know who you're going to meet. Uh, there are A-list people there all the time, um, without mentioning names. Uh, there are some very A-list people, and it you know both on the wine side as well as the Hollywood celebrity side and sports people as well. Either people I know from the A's or just in general. Um, yeah, it's probably but, yeah, interesting so overlap it, it really there. Is an interesting, oh yeah, no, there's a lot of overlap there. Usually, I've had um, a lot of visiting players ask me wine wrecks and and stuff like that which is quite funny uh, the giants have an official psalm i'm still lobbying the a's to name me their official psalm uh, there you go you make an all kosher yeah. wine list first uh i told him i don't need the pay raise. exactly i don't <laughs> i don't need the pay raise. i just want it on the business card um but yeah they <laughs> get some kosher wine into the suites 
but yeah, so, you know, it is, it is kind of a, a nice job perk, um, but really just being able to work at these historic properties and, and also you get to drink some unbelievable wine. You is know, there a particular, I, I um, is there a particular wine that you made um, or you were involved with that you are like the most proud of or, or that you can drink for the rest of your life if you had to? Yeah. People ask me this question a lot. Uh, for me, it's like picking a kid. I mean, you know, each of them are, are really good in their own way. Um, I, I, I can't, I can say with pride that I've never released a wine I wasn't proud about, um, uh, which is, you know, to, considering how many vintages we've gone through and how difficult those vintages have been, uh, you know, each of them have their own story and what makes them good to me, which makes me not always the most, uh, unbiased presenter of my wines well you're gonna be um, a great you're gonna be a great father if that's for sure that's a very that's a very uh, uh that's a very diplomatic answer i know you know i have four kids and you know maybe you'll ask me which one i want to take on a road trip and i'd be able to answer the question i don't know but uh well, I'm, one of, I'm one of i'm one of five and if you ask my father that question he might have a slightly different answer um but the yeah it's you know each each wine does have its own kind of connection to me and you know, whether it was the first wine we made at that particular winery, if it was the first right. grapes from that particular vineyard, um, each of them really do have their own story. Um, and I often have to catch myself from from boring people with that story or why the cooperage of that barrel made a difference. Um, you know, I can kind of see the eyes glaze over and I'm like, ah, I've lost you. Okay. Yeah, um, it's funny that you mentioned that. I mean, obviously this is the forum for that sort of conversation, but um, uh, do you think that... Um, maybe off topic, but do you think that winemakers have a hard time uh, talking about wine to regular people? A hundred thousand percent. Because I think, yeah. Okay. I I, I had that experience as well. Yeah. The most difficult part for me was that like, for example, at KFWE in New York, right. Is that you have the industry part beforehand. And so you're having one conversation with people and then you quickly shift over to when they open it up, which is lovely. And I really do appreciate getting to meet people that, genuinely enjoy your product, which, which is always kind of off-putting at first, you know, you're like, Oh, that's weird, but okay. Um, and, and then you kind of do, okay. And then I can say they want to talk about the wine, but do they actually want to talk about the wine? Do they want to talk about a certain element of winemaking? Do they want to ask me if I step on the grapes? You know, like, you know, there's, there's a few different levels and, and usually I'm, I'm okay in picking up the cues as to which level of winemaking discussion they want to talk about. Do they want to yeah. talk about Cooper just for an hour or, you know, about vineyard spacing or do they, you know, want to just kind of find out what's the difference between cab and Merlot? You know, so it, it yeah, that's, that's an interesting. Uh, me, figure it out. I think that, I think that you're unique that you have a read on that because I think that a lot of winemakers, um, are sort of uh they they'll just go into the the mode and they'll turn on the uh the speech and you start hearing words like phenolics and you're like oh god like bro you did not read the room yeah like, you know? um yeah. it or not bro because not everyone's a uh a male winemaker but no actually i actually work with that's about 50 percent of the winemakers i work with are women yeah um but it's uh it's it's interesting yeah i think that um maybe you should make like some sort of a program for winemakers on how to talk to regular people about wine. You might want well, to. We, so to, to Dan's credit, so Dan Levin is the pioneer of, of kosher winemaking in Napa and really should be given a, a whole load of credit, but he is way too humble to ever accept it. Uh, he every year throws a kosher harvest party. Uh, it's a bit of a 
uh, an industry party for all the kosher wine, all the winemakers making kosher wine. And I always joke that I'm going to give out the golden zip tie to, uh, you know, the best kosher winemaker, but it really is kind of just a, a, a brotherhood. And, and even at those, you know, parties we do, it's, it's, it's quite a, um, you know, it, these people should be in competition with each other, but no, they're not, you know, um, Morgan Maurice always tells a story. He said he was at a conference where uh, someone asked whether or not they think that the people in the room should, should Napa be the best wine in, in, in the world. Everyone raised their hand affirmative. He said, should the person next to you be making better wine than you? And obviously nobody raised their hand, right? Because, but they both need to be the same, right? So everything, you know, everyone needs to improve to, to do better. And on the kosher side, the fact that, we've been able to kind of make these connections and help build kosher wine in general in Napa has really been instrumental in getting us to the place we're at. Yeah. That's a, that's a fantastic, uh, that's a fantastic observation. And just, you know, just being there in the Valley um, and, and having those people who are going to stop what they're doing and say, yes, there's a micro community of, of wine lovers who need it done a certain way. Um, it's pretty crazy. And, uh, I think that definitely, uh, you know, not antagonizing people who are on your team or on the same team, um, is, you know, is, is definitely not unfortunately, uh, representative of the rest of the community and how we treat each other, unfortunately. But, um, I think that the fact that you guys have been able to keep it together over there and really treasure each other and, uh, and be good to each other, I think is, is why largely that this has been such a fantastic, and successful um, phenomenon. Where do you see it going? I mean, I think that, um, you know, as you formulate your response, I think that it's, it's just going to get more and more. And then probably it's going to get too high end for a bit. And then people will come down to earth with more sort of um, uh, realistic brands that are more sort of typical of Napa. There's, you know, everyone can, uh, you know, be a, a private equity company and open up a, uh, you know, something next to, next to Diamond Creek, something next to Screaming Eagle, next to Mandavi, next to, um, you know, whoever. Um, but there's a ton of like little pocket wineries here and there that are producing like excellent Napa Cab in the hundred dollar range, sub hundred dollar range. That uh, I think that that is just not happening in in kosher at all. I mean, you can't. Right. Well, I do. I do make wine next door to Screaming Eagle, so I guess you know that happened already. But, right, but um, that's that's ext- but that's very expensive. That's going to exactly. be that's going to um, be you know what three hundred bucks a bottle. Yeah, well, part part of that's a little bit my fault in that I I screen clients to the point where I decide whether or not I want to work there, and I do set a pretty high standard as to where I where I want to work, and you know, fortunately, I'm in a position where I can do that. Um, and they tend to be the very, very expensive wineries. Um, and I am often found in a position where I have to not defend the price of the wine that we make, but kind of, ex, you know, rationalize the point. Winemaking in Napa is extremely expensive, just first and foremost. And so then it becomes an economy of scale issue. Right. And as you kind of alluded to earlier, the biggest problem we have in terms of kosher winemaking in Napa is, is a lack of labor force. Um and it's extremely hard to convince somebody, you know, who's from to do it because you have to work very long hours in Napa. Um, 
for not very much money. Right. And you have to be able to kind of not be a standard bearer for the Jewish people because that might be a little bit melodramatic, but but basically be the the only Jewish person that a lot of these people have ever met. You have to be hard on them because they do have, you know, you have to keep it kosher and there's a set of standards you need to adhere to because I'm also, you know, part of my job is being a mashkiach, right? So in addition to being the winemaker, I'm also the mashkiach. So both for the OU and the Star K, um, you know, for the various wineries that we work at. And so, you know, there are a set of rules that you can be good friends with, you know, these people, which I am, but also, you know, that you have to be able to distance yourself and say, no, actually we can't do this. Or guess what? This tank is trafe because, you know, something happened. Uh, it's extremely rare, but it does happen and it can cause severe economic loss and it, it, it can be awkward. You know, it can be sticky. So you also, not only do you have to be able to do all the labor side, you also have to be confident enough in both your Judaism and your winemaking ability to kind of take a stand on certain things. Um, and so, yeah, it's extremely difficult. It's, it's, it's extremely difficult for me to recruit, um, harvest help, especially. Um, and so that I think is probably the biggest problem that we face in terms of expanding the Napa. Um, Bren, the other thing too, is it's kind of knowing your market. Um, you mentioned that there might be kind of this bubble that's created and then burst at the high, at the highest point of, of kosher winemaking. I, I don't see it. I, I've been fearful of that, obviously, for the last you know 10 years, but people keep buying our wine. And I think as long as we are producing quality products, if you are in the position, which I'm not, but if you're in the position where you can afford $400 bottles, then you buy them. Uh, if you're not in a position where you can afford $400 bottles, I highly recommend that you do not purchase a $400 bottle of wine. Um, you know, so I think that there is definitely, definitely room for kind of that mid mid price tier, high quality, but but mid price tier. And I think John does a wonderful job of of filling that, uh, both at Covenant and with his Heydu brand, uh, which obviously I'm still very much affiliated with. But even then, it's you know the, there's there's lots of room on the playground. Let's put it that way. There's no we're nowhere near a bubble. Uh, at this point, there's still so much. I mean, have you've seen it in France and, and Italy and a lot of the stuff you import? There's so many producers that people just haven't heard about that you know either will come online or new stuff or you know ex- established brands, uh, and they'll fill that market. And maybe people will buy slightly less of one, but they'll still spend that same amount of capital on wine in general. Um, but yeah, no, I would I would love I would love for more people to get into the industry. It would make my life a lot easier. Yeah, there's there's only one of you and one Dan, and that's it. Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's a few wineries. I mean, obviously, Hagafen, which should be mentioned, you know, um, they've done amazing work since the late 70s. Sure. Uh, Ernie's done a fantastic job. Uh, I just, you know, can't speak to it because I haven't really worked there. Um, and, you know, there's a few other pro- projects that are going around um, where I know that um, the OU has sent some people to kind of staff it. They tend to be a little bit smaller. Either people that I've helped with start a, you know, starting out or, you know, at various stages, but they're not necessarily my responsibility. So I know that there are a few other projects. I'm not exactly sure which, what official label they're under. I know where they're being made, um, but the, uh, yeah. So you know, there's there's definitely some some projects, and then also, so the newest project I've, or one of the newer projects I've been working on at Vintage, which is a Russell Bevan. Um, directed project. I don't know. Are you familiar with Russell? Yeah. The Bevan sellers. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. So right. Russell, um, and we were making a lot, uh, high, high level, high quantity, high quality, high quantity, uh, Chardonnay and Cab, which should be released very soon. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when, but it should be on the market very soon. And I think that that will also change it because it is unlike any of the other kosher wine on the market from Napa. I mean, it's really true, big Napa Chardonnay, big Napa Cab. Um, and it is, you know, stylistically different than anything I've done before. So from a, you know, kind of just an academic challenge, I found it fascinating. Um, and also just being able to kind of come out with the quantities that we haven't really produced at some of these other wineries, just from the initial offering is definitely going to be an interesting kind of analytical business model to kind of keep an eye on as well. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's great to have, um, the volume and, and, um, you know, be able to sell it in both markets. Like, you know, it just, and also wholesale, right. Um, Because a lot of the wineries we do are either direct to consumer or, you know, limited, you know, allotments and allocations, uh, which is great. And, you know, the Sauvignon Blanc we made at Marciano, I think sold out in under three hours, which was, amazing for the price point and also just for kosher white wine. I mean, you could probably speak to this more than me, but I think the biggest challenge in wine in kosher winemaking is getting Jewish people to pay more than a thousand dollars for a case of white wine. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's definitely happening with white Burgundy and some white Bordeaux. And obviously the, you just mentioned the Marciano Blanc. Um, I had a bottle of Marciano Blanc, um, uh a month ago something like that it was very very good i think it was 2020 yeah that's i think our first vintage of it yeah i've got i've got the 21 also but i haven't opened it yet Um, all the years all the years start to blend together in my head so you know i have to like kind of do a mental uh inventory on all my tasting notes yeah um, but um you know i guess at a third of the price the uh the my commerce is uh it seems like more and more of a steal um well but, i do because i'm you know i work on both of them right, right. so it's not like you know <laughs> there's varying factors that go into both those things both in terms of ex- you know exclusivity and um you know just in terms of how much is being produced oh right? yeah and then and also just costs i mean costs in napa have gone up significantly since I started working there and it's starting to percolate through towards the bottle pricing. For sure. And if, if our costs go up, we have to charge more. And unfortunately that hits at the consumer and, you know, I see it cause I don't, I can't afford 95% of the wine that I make. Let's put it that way. Well, a lot of it is, is very high end. And, uh, but you know, you do get to experience it through the process and you have a special, of course, of course. Uh, my, my point is that we, we know yeah. that we know that right. going into the process, like right. that this is a, a luxury premium product and we love to share it with other people. And so for anyone that's in Napa, both Marciano and my commas do kosher tours, uh, a bunch of the other wineries do kosher tours as well. Um, you know, it does exist. I think that's one of the other things that we're working on to try and get that word out there that there are high end kosher wine tours and tastings available. Um, and they will be as accommodating to you as you need, whether that's depending on your level of kosher. And my commas both has on mountain tastings. They have a downtown tasting room. Marciano has tastings at the winery as well. Obviously these are by appointment and often will cost. But if you do like 
kosher wine and you you do want to try and go visit some of these unbelievable like real jewels of properties uh in napa it, it does exist um, i think that's one of the things we're, we're fighting most against is that there's nothing up there no there, there's definitely a there there there's a lot and and it it's i think just being there um even if you had to sort of you know wing it with uh with the tours and tastings just being there is a different experience as soon as you drive into Napa Valley, it just is a whole different energy over there. Um, especially when, you know, if you go, you know, I guess May through September where the, the vines are green, uh, you can see fruit on the vines. Um, you can feel the weather changes throughout the day. Uh, and then if you go towards the end of the season where you can just have that, that smell of, uh, fermentation just everywhere. It is just, it's something to behold. Yeah, I always recommend actually going March and April because I find it way less crowded. Uh, the weather can be a bit mercur- mercurial, but um, it's way less crowded. And we're also in a lot better mood because we've just finished harvest and everything's barreled down. And we're not stressed yet about next harvest or bottling. Right. So, you know, I'd say March and April is kind of the sweet spot many right. times. A little uh, insider information there. Yeah. So appreciate um, that. Yeah, for you know, sure. It also can be a little bit cheaper. Um, so... That's kind of my, uh, as my personal uh, unqualified opinion as to uh, when to visit Napa. Um, yeah, visiting during harvest can be tough if you want tastings because it can be pretty hit or miss. Um, but yeah, no, the the springtime it's beautiful, and you know there's a lot going on, and also the winemakers are a little bit more free. So if you do want to talk to us, you know we're not that scary. Always a um, good time to head up to the valley. Any closing thoughts about the world of kosher wine? I mean, I'm just. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. But the, the, how far the high end kosher wine has gone in the last ten years is is really encouraging, and just kind of see meeting people. I you know I have the opportunity to go to various places to either do wine tastings or doing um, you know product showings either at KFWE or other places, and it really is encouraging to hear the feedback from people. It's always you know nice when someone likes your stuff, um, but also you know, being pulled aside at various industry stuff, you know, people hear, oh, wait, you're doing kosher wine. Can you get me some of this, you know, like from various distributors or even at Unified up in Sacramento, you know, people, people hear about kosher wine and being able to kind of strip away a lot of the stigma um, and showing that, you know, because wine is such an integral part of Judaism and Jewish culture and Jewish ritual to kind of remove any kind of negative and negativity towards kosher wine is is really you know heartening for me um so kind of between just the general positivity towards kosher wine making both in the industry as well as kind of on the consumer side is, is always really nice to see and i think that we have a long way to go but i think it's also important to note you know how far we've come and it really is on the back of some unbelievable hard work from too many people to mention right now but some Un, you know the amount of work, both physical and just re- cultivating relationships and doing it the right way, has really gotten us to this point. And you know, it really is a privilege, and I recognize that I have a massive privilege to be able to do what I love to do on a daily basis. And you know, thank you to everyone who buys our wine, so I can continue to doing <laughs> what I love to do on a daily basis. Yeah, no, I think that what you're saying is, is, is very important that people should understand that. Um, and it's uh, just a, a parallel um, to cut myself off. But I, you know, a number of years ago, I would hear very often 
um, from people when I was doing tastings. Um, oh, I'm not supporting France. I'm not buying. I'm not buying French wine. I don't support France. I'm like, I understand. However, we have, um, uh, you know, non-Jewish people who own these wineries, and we have a whole community of Jewish winemakers who are traveling up and down uh, the whole country of France, and different remote regions, and and uh, and and not sleeping and working their behinds off, um, and their livelihood is the production of this kosher wine as well. So you might not want to support X, Y, and Z, but when you purchase this product, you're supporting those people and you're supporting those relationships. And I think that you're saying it very well because, you know, when, when people see you and they work with you and, and your colleagues, um, they get a positive impression of not just about kosher wine, but about kosher people. And that affects everybody, um, whether you're a wine lover at the $20 level or you're a wine lover at the $200 level. And I think that it's very, um, it's very meaningful um, to have that approach. And, and uh, I'm sure that your intentions and your uh, thoughts are definitely making their way in a more of a metaphysical sense into the wine. And that's why uh, it's, it's uh, so successful and so delicious. Well, yeah, I always like to give this example and it, it applies also. I, I actually give this example to a lot of the people I work with and, and work for me at the A's too, um, which is, when I bottle wine, right, I see bottle, we usually bottle between 60 bottles per minute and 70 bottles per minute. Okay. And you, you know, you know, with the price tag of the wine that we do, right. And when you're doing quality control at 60 bottles per minute, right, that's one every second, you know, you, you're tempted to let it go through, but you really do have to take that step back and be like, okay, I'm seeing 10,000 of these right now. Uh, but you're going to buy this one bottle and it's going to be saved for a very special occasion. And that label better be straight. And that OU sticker, for all those that don't know, all those OU stickers on the back of the bottle are applied by hand. One at okay? a time. We have everyone all the way up through Andy Erickson applying those by hand. Okay. It's not, this is an all hands situation. Um, and each of those, we center those up, right? We do our very best to make sure those are in the exact middle because we know that these bottles are very expensive. And the, we, let's put it this way. There is no detail that goes unnoticed. So when we're bottling at 60 bottles per minute, we do our very mu- up, you know, our utmost to make sure that each bottle is perfect. The M's on the Mayakamas on the foil is lined up perfectly to the label, right? There is a guy that spins each bottle to make sure that that label and that foil line up perfectly, right? We, we know, we know what we're doing in the same way with baseball, right? Like I get to see 81 baseball games every year and I know that one of those games is going to be the father and son, the only game they go to that season. It's going to be very important. So it doesn't matter how bad of a day I'm having, I better make sure that that father and son have a phenomenal time at the game. Right. Right. So it, it translates, you know, all over, but we know how we know what these bottles mean to people. And we really do try and convey the proper professionalism and attitude that goes into making each one of these special. And so, you know, it really, you know, it seems like it's a little thing, but we know how much it's important. And we, you know, we hope that you guys can appreciate that too, both in the product and even just the packaging. That's amazing. David, thank you. Winemaker extraordinaire. Uh, Great chatting and looking forward to um, hopefully recording episode two in person up north, not during harvest. Yeah, well, that that might be a little tricky, but yeah. <laughs> Although it would be pretty cool to kind of follow you around with a camera for twenty four hours to <laughs> harvest Napa Valley. I think that'd be a, 
uh, a I mean, series. Sure, sure, we could try, we could try something. We could, kosher we could something kosher winemakers. Uh, uh, kosher winemakers gone wild. Napa edition. That'd be amazing. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> All right, amazing. Thank you again for joining us today on the show. Alrighty. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Kosher Sommelier Podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram, where you can be part of the Kosher Sommelier community. That's Kosher, S-O-M-M. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.